This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. During the 30 years he has reported on the Middle East, Robert Fisk has covered every major event in the region, from the Algerian Civil War to the Iranian Revolution, from the American hostage crisis in Beirut to the Iran-Iraq War, from the Russian invasion of Afghanistan to Israel's invasion of Lebanon, from the Gulf War to the invasion and ongoing war in Iraq. In his new book, The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East, Robert Fisk brings his knowledge, his first-hand experience, and his intimate understanding of the region to address the full complexity of its political history and its current state of affairs. Middle East correspondent for Britain's The Independent, Fisk lived in the Middle East for almost three decades and is one of the few Western journalists who has interviewed Osama bin Laden. Robert Fisk, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. How are you doing today? You're up in San Francisco? Yes, absolutely exhausted. I've managed to go through three continents in about 35 days, (laughs) which includes Toronto, Australia, Cambridge, England, Ireland, Antwerp, Amsterdam, Beirut, New York, Los Angeles, and here. My my goodness. So don't ask me which city I'm in. (laughs) So in the, in the last 30-plus year, years, you've covered many wars in the Middle East. I was wondering, in, in terms of its impact on the region, where would you place the current war in Iraq? Oh, I think it's by far the most important conflict that I've covered because we've never had before uh, the world's only superpower enmeshed in such a controversial war, a war that's turning to look, frankly, to me like a war of absolute folly where, you know, we're faced with this terrible equation now, uh, post-invasion, where the, you know, um, the Americans must leave Iraq, the Americans will leave Iraq, and the Americans can't leave Iraq, which mm-hmm. is the sort of equation that turns sand into, into blood. It's facing a ferocious insurgency, the like of which it could never have imagined, although if you actually read what bin Laden was saying on his audio tapes before the invasion of 2003, you might have got some inclination, it might some indication this was going to happen. Um, but uh, as well, you see, we've got this extraordinary American prestige at stake in front of the whole Arab world, all our so-called Arab allies, our friends in the Middle East, as President Bush likes to call them, are watching with bated breath to see what's going to happen because already those of us who go to Iraq and work in Baghdad realize that from Mosul, Kirkuk in the north down to Basra, Iraq is in a state of chaos and anarchy. Uh, talking about democracy and referendums for constitution are, are, uh, are a kind of um, a fantasy world when you, you consider how Iraqis are living and the degree and the numbers of Iraqis, innocent Iraqis, who are dying every day. Could you talk a little bit about that, the, the uh, reality of Iraq versus what we are still seeing on the news today? Yes, I certainly can. I mean, I'll give an example. Uh, not so long ago, I drove down Highway 8, which is a horrible throat-cutting insurgents highway south of Baghdad, 80 miles. And it was lined with burned-out American vehicles, smashed police trucks, abandoned government checkpoints, armed insurgents in all the towns like Mahmoudia, Iskandaria, Hilla. Um, an extraordinary state of seeing a, a whole country in a state of anarchy, totally outside government control. Um, you cannot leave, um, I can't get outside Baghdad unless I plan for it two weeks in advance. 
Um, you know there are armed insurgents on the streets of Haifa Street quite often, which is only half a mile from the green zone, the area of the former Saddam Palace where the British and American embassies have all their staffs and where the American military uh, advisors live. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's extraordinary. I can come out of Baghdad, out of Iraq, after witnessing this this. Um, this shambles after going to the scenes of suicide bombings, sometimes six or seven suicide bombers a day, Walmart suicide bombings, who could ever have imagined it, and look at the pieces of human body and flesh, and then two days later, Varaman or Beirut, I'm in a European capital, or I'm in Washington or New York, and what I see on television, and particularly what I hear uh, President Bush say, or our own dear Prime Minister, Mr. Blair, simply bears no relation to reality. It's not even planet Earth. Is there some kind of, just as you were describing, is there some kind of a cruel irony to the fact that the British and the Americans have taken up residence in, in a uh, Saddam Hussein uh, palace? <laughs> yeah, there, there certainly is. I went in there before they actually took up residence. When it, the, on the day it was captured by the Americans, when the lawns were carpeted with cartridge cases, uh, so thick that you walked through them, they were like fallen leaves in the fall, you know. Yeah. And um, in, indeed, many of the American troops inside are now sleeping in the great congress hall where uh, Saddam would once lecture his ministers and his advisors. No doubt they sat there shivering with fear. Um, it's the same hall in which an, on one wall is a picture of the um, of, of Jerusalem and the dome of the and the the, the, the dome of the rock and yeah. uh, the great mosque of Al Aqsa and on the other wall are these massive missiles with um, 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 with Allahu Akbar written on the side hurtling up into the heavens a, a vast chamber with Saddam's own speeches inscribed in marble round the walls this is where Americans and British and American <laughs> diplomats now sleep and work it is ironic yes because of course in a sense you see Saddam became a prisoner of his own palaces fearful of his own people, the Iraqis, and now the Americans and British are in the same palaces, fearful of the Iraqi people. Yeah, I'm sure this irony isn't lost on on the Iraqis. No, people. no, not at all. Indeed, uh, even when you know the first um, Americans and British arrived in Baghdad, the first thing they did was put up these huge concrete walls. Baghdad is now a city of walls: yeah. walls beside hotels, walls beside offices, walls beside ministries, walls that run for for miles down the banks of the Tigris River through Baghdad. You know, you need to see it to believe it. And it was always pointed out to me by Iraqis that Saddam put all the walls up around Baghdad as well, but he didn't put as many as the Americans have put up. <laughs> well, you, you uh, actually, uh, uh, I'm, first of all, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Robert Fisk, and he's the author of The Great War for Civilization. Um, you described that first day the Americans arrived in Baghdad and what happened and where the Americans went to protect, what the Americans decided to protect. Yeah, well, they decided not to protect right. the museums, the archives, the central bank, the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Higher Education, all the ministries except for two, which they guarded with their lives. One was the Ministry of Interior, which had, of course, all the files on the intelligence services of Iraq, and which also no doubt held the files of Saddam's long association commercially and militarily with the United States government. And they also protected the Ministry of Oil, which, of course, represents the great resources of, of Iraq, which is, in reserves at least, could still possibly be called the greatest uh, oil-bearing nation in the world. So the Americans moved in to protect the ministry housing the files and archives of America's own relationship with Saddam, an extremely sensitive topic, which Saddam is not even allowed to talk about under the rules of the American-administered court, which he's now before for mass murder, and the Ministry of Oil, because all the files and the disks and the computers 
showing the export uh, and uh, the export of Iraqi crude and the figures and the, the dollar rates and, the, in fact, the euro rates, uh, as it was under Saddam, of that, of that oil revenue, uh, that was protected and looked after. Uh, I remember um, two days after that famous statue was pulled down by American troops in Ferdos Square, not by Iraqis, but by Americans. I remember very well finding the Museum of Korans on fire, burning in one more than a thousand degrees of heat. There were 12th century Korans going up in smoke and cinders in front of me. And I raced in the car to the Marine headquarters, which was based near Fadal Square, and I ran inside. I said, look, there's this extraordinary museum of Quranic archives going up in flames. And one of the soldiers picked up a phone to an officer and said, there's a guy here who says there's some kind of Bible museum going up in smoke. And I thought, well, hold on, not exactly the Christian Bible, but let's not get involved with that. Just tell me, just, yeah, what, what's the location? And I found it from on a map. I said, you don't need a map. You can walk outside this building. I'll show you the column of smoke. And I went straight back and watched the rest of the Korans burn, popping and exploding room after room, and no mm. soldier ever turned up from the headquarters of the Marines. Now, yes. in your travels throughout the Middle East and in that region, um, do these kind of the story you just described is that well known? I mean, is this something that people oh, among would... Arabs, of course, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the Arab press. I mean, my own newspaper made a big fuss about it. I don't know how the degree to which it, it, it caught on the states at the time, because of course I was in Baghdad. But the Arab press. Uh, took the view on the Arab television. We had Al Jazeera, of course, which was the satellite channel Arabia, which was a big Arab satellite channel. They took the view that somebody wanted, or some institution wanted, mm -hmm. to destroy the cultural identity of Iraq. And I must say, watching the destruction of the National Museum, looking at the destruction and burning of the National Archives, all the Ottoman papers and documents going back hundreds of years yeah. of the Ottoman Empire, the burning of the Museum of Korans in the Quranic Library, it was impossible to escape the thought that somebody or some organization wanted to destroy the identity of Iraq, its historical identity. Yeah, it's, it's hard. To, it's hard to really. It's hard to get around that when you when you yeah, because that's what happened. Yeah. The historical identity was destroyed, and yeah. much worse than that, though much less publicized uh, everywhere, not just in the United States, is if you go back to the ancient cities of Sumeria, way out in the desert, the, the cities where civilization began, where you know Ugarit. Uh, uh, buildings uh, shaped like conicals with stairs on the outside uh, can be found where where the Sumerians wrote in clay tablets not in an alphabet you, you read what they wrote by the depth to which their fingers penetrated the clay of their tablets mm. these cities have been plundered en masse almost certainly by gangs who've been instructed by foreigners to go and find artifacts for private collections. And what they've done is an act of absolute historical sacrilege because they've been told, for example, we need pots and shards from the 3,000 years ago. Mm. So they dig into the ancient city and they come to uh, artifacts from 1,000 years ago. These they have systematically smashed by the million to look for gold inside. Then they've dug down to the 2,000-year level, 2,000 years ago, and they've smashed everything there to look for gold. And then when they reach the 3,000-year-old level, they take out the pots and the artifacts uh. and take them abroad. Now, all they've done is build these huge, make and dig these huge holes into the desert in all these ancient cities. It looks like a B-52 has carpet bombed the whole place over and over again, city after ancient city. Even the city of Lhasa, where the Sumerian clay tablets are believed to have begun their existence, the very first handwriting of the human race, yeah. looks as if it's been carpet bombed. Now, in years to come, I think, this desecration of the places, the cities where civilization began, will be seen as an even greater 
um, destruction of the cultural heritage of the world, not just of Iraq, than the museum and the Quranic uh, library in Baghdad. And it's, well, it just, it's hard to imagine that um, we will not be held accountable for, for history. Will I promise you we well, will not be held accountable because we won the war. Or we thought we won the war. Well. I don't think we've won it now. Uh, but I, I think um, we will not be held accountable because we will the people will be the people who do the accounting. But there will be archaeologists in years to come, and one or two of them, you know, already saying this, who will say that this was the greatest non-human tragedy to afflict the Middle East for a long, long time. Um, mm. You know, there's a, a wonderful young um, archaeologist, Lebanese called Frashouk, who's actually catalogued, been to each one of these cities, and I've been to several of them with her. And there isn't one that has not been totally plundered. I, we went with the, a woman who's the deputy curator of the archaeological museum in the city of Nasiriyah. It's a Shiite city on the river. And we took her to several cities with armed men. Of course, there's, there's banditry and insurgents in the area, so you have to travel with about 20 armed men with you into the desert. Mm. And this young museum curator, Iraqi, just sat down on the side of this great pile of shards and pots and wept for about an hour. We couldn't move her. Huh. We're speaking with uh, Robert Fisk and his uh, book, The Great War for Civilization. Uh, recently you wrote about uh, how journalism has degenerated into mouse journalism in, uh, in Iraq right now. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? <laughs> sure. Well, uh, actually, I said it's degenerated into hotel journalism. Oh, okay. And mouse journalism is what I practice, which isn't much better. Okay. Um, no, what's happened is that it, the situation is so dangerous, and the insurgents, of course, uh, have no compunction about murdering Western journalists on video if necessary, um, although they let some of them free, um, that um, the li our lives are forfeit now the moment you land on the airplane mm. in Baghdad airport. Even the airport road is now forbidden to diplomats, though I still drive on it. And what's happened is that either because the editors have insisted or because the reporters are frightened, which I, one doesn't blame them for, or because the uh, security uh, detail attached to so many reporters, though not to me, in other words, former special forces officers, former special forces um, soldiers, former SAS men from Britain, have advised the journalist he must not leave his hotel room, that much reporting is down, now done in Baghdad from reporters sitting in their hotel rooms with mobile phones calling up the green zone and talking to the British and American embassies or U.S. officers and then writing their reports and going off to dinner. In other words, they simply don't go on the streets of Baghdad. Uh, I, I don't actually object on any moral grounds to this, because reporters have a right to look after their lives. What I do object to is that they don't tell their readers, their viewers, and their listeners that they don't leave the hotel, thus giving the impression that when they say Americans killed 142 terrorists in the town of Tel Afar, they give the impression that they can go there and check it out, whereas, in fact, they can't leave the few square meters of their hotel room. Uh, the alternative to doing this is what I call mouse journalism, which is what I try to practice, <laughs> yeah. but increasingly vainly, I'm afraid. And that is that, uh, like my colleague um, Patrick Coben of The Independent, like the Financial Times, mm -hmm. and um, indeed like the Guardian newspaper of London until their correspondent was um, uh, kidnapped, uh, mercifully only briefly, uh, three weeks ago. And the Guardian has just announced, by the way, that it will no longer send any reporters from Britain to Baghdad. Um, I go still out on the streets of Baghdad with... Um, two Iraqi friends and a beat-up old black car. We change the car regularly, so it isn't always the same one and can't be recognized too easily. And I still travel the streets and go to the mortuary and count bodies. But, um, you know, I'll give you an example of what it's like. In August, I raced off to a bus station where there'd been two suicide bombings. Um, uh, suicide is largely a Shiite bus station. There were body parts on the road. I jumped out of the car. I took two photographs, one of a baby on fire next to a bus. 
and I had 20 seconds talking to an eyewitness when suddenly there were 40 or 50 Iraqis thumping their fists on the roof of the car in anger and fury. And, of course, I jumped in the car and raced away. You know, minute, 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 off I went. Yeah. <laughs> um, I call that mouse journalism. And, of course, okay, I could get six or 700 words out of it. I was there. I did the best I could as a street reporter. But increasingly, you know, one asks oneself, is the risk worth the story or is the story worth the risk, whichever way you like? And I've never found myself on an assignment in almost 30 years in the Middle East asking myself, as I do now, can I really keep doing this? Is, is this really sane? Um, and I don't know if it is. In one sense, I think it is, because the Americans and British are very happy that we can't move around. We'd be very happy if we couldn't go and see what's happening or go to the mortuary and count the dead, which is the one thing the British and Americans don't want reporters to do. Yeah. Because, which, of course, the Iraq is the people who are primarily paying the price. Which you did in July. <coughs> well, you, yes, you, I did in August, actually. August. But, and then it, it was in reference to July, because... Right. What I do is, in Iraq, I, I spend 20 minutes maximum on any location I go to because 25 minutes, we reckon, is the time it takes for someone with a mobile phone to get a gang of gunmen in a car to come and take you away. Hmm. And so repeatedly, I go back to the city mortuary, also the other hospital mortuaries, and count the dead. One Monday morning, there were nine dead in the city mortuary by 9 o'clock, 26 by 12 o'clock. Uh, or most of them victims of assassination and execution. There are death squads of all sides in Baghdad, including, I believe, the Interior Ministry, as well as the insurgents and all the other militia groups. One young woman was brought in, hands tied behind her back, shot three times in the head. There was a baby shot in the face. Um, when the mortuary uh, staff, whom, all of whom I know now, because I spend hours collectively in the mortuaries, um, in very unpleasant circumstances, you know, the, the, the electricity is often gone, the, the heat is enormous, and there's flies on the corpses. And um, they allowed me to sit at the computer where they have the official figures of dead, which no reporter is meant to see. And um, for July alone in just Baghdad, uh, the number of violent deaths of civilians was 1,100. That's more than half the total American dead since the beginning of the invasion in 2003. And if, of course, you extrapolate from that, which I don't like doing, but one has to since one can't go to all the other cities in Iraq and do the same thing, if you take into account the deaths in Mosul, Kirkuk, to some extent, I suppose, Erbil, Ramadi, Fallujah, Bakuba, Amara, Najaf, Kabbalah, Basra, all the other cities, we must be talking of three or 4,000 in Iraq minimum every month. That's 36 to 48,000 Iraqis dying violently every year. That makes that figure of 100,000, which Bush and Blair poo-pooed, possibly quite conservative. Yeah, that does. Do you plan on going back to Baghdad? Yes, in December, next uh -huh. month or January, I will go back again. I want to. Um, but I go with an ever you know, heavier heart and ever greater fear. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you only have to fly into Baghdad to realize what it's like. You come across at 30,000 feet. You make no final approach. You're over the airport at 30,000 feet, Jeez. and you spiral downwards as if you're going down the corkscrew of a, a bottle opener, um, because you can't move two kilometers outside of the airspace immediately above the airport, otherwise you'll be hit by a ground-to-air missile. And uh, it's a Lebanese crew on the little plane I fly in on. Sometimes I sit with them in the cabin at the front, and we're all looking for little pink flames. We're seriously looking for the flame on the back of the ground-to-air missile as we go down. And, um, we're speaking with uh, Robert Fisk, uh, journalist, author of The Great War for Civilization, uh, the uh, conquest of the Middle East. And it sounds, uh, from what you're describing, I want to get to two different points here, but I, I believe I, I read somewhere where you, the title of the book is somewhat facetious. Or uh, Describe what you meant by the title of the book. Well, uh, it's, it's meant to be ironic rather ironic. than facetious. Uh, yeah. My father yes. 
I was much older than my mother. Bill Fisk was a soldier in the First World War. Not many people of my age, you can say, the father was in the First World War. Uh, he was born in 1899, in the century before last. And in 1918, at the very end of the First War, he was sent to the trenches of France to fight in the Third Battle of the Somme. And when he um, died in 1992, at the age of 93, I inherited his campaign medal, you know, which he was awarded for his, his, his being a soldier in the First War. And on the reverse side of the medal were engraved the words, The Great War for Civilization, which my father at the time thought it was. Later on, he became... Um, much distressed by the fact that it was just a great waste of life that led to more wars. But it is a fact that in 17 months after the First World War, the victors, who were primarily the British and the French, um, drew the borders of Northern Ireland, Yugoslavia, and most of the Middle East. And I spent my entire professional life as a journalist in Belfast and Bosnia and Belgrade and Beirut and Baghdad, watching the people, the peoples within these borders burn. Uh, a great tragedy, which was to follow this war, which was supposed to be for civilization. And, of course, still we think we're fighting wars for civilization. Uh, it, it could be on a medal given out by President Bush. Um, the, it's not meant to be facetious. It's, it's deeply ironic and yeah. actually deeply depressing because yeah. after the first 200 pages of the book where I'm covering those events when I was a comparatively younger man, um, the text is a pageant of, of torture and war. Um, some courage, but an awful lot of viciousness and brutality and dictatorships and ethnic cleansing and betrayal and injustice and, and genocide. It's a, it's a very unhappy book in the sense that it was very painful for me to write. Never want to write a book like it again. I think this is a, my opinion, inject my opinion here, but this is a particularly vicious and um, pointless war. Uh, I, I would like to ask your opinion. I think you from what you described, it sounds like you've, the outcome of this war has been determined. How do you see it playing out? Well, let's get away from that cruel equation that I said earlier. The Americans will leave. They've got to, and they will. Uh, the question is how you, how the Americans, I mean, we're including the British, but we're just little tiddlers in this fishbowl compared to you. Uh, how do the Americans get out without total humiliation, without um, losing their worldwide prestige as the world's only superpower? Um, first of all, the Arabs won't mind if the Americans leave. They will not draw the conclusion from it that the Americans are powerless. They'll just say the Americans are doing what they should have been doing two years ago and getting out. That means they're wise at last. Um, <laughs> elsewhere in the world, of course, I was in Canberra the other day launching my book in Australia. And I had a dinner at which there were some quite senior Australian army officers present. And they were discussing the need to double the size of the Australian armed forces. And I said, why on earth do you want to do that? You know, you're just a, a sandpit surrounded by a ring of green where you live, you see. <laughs> That's my description of Australia. Which they weren't very happy about. They said, they said, no, they said, you don't understand. They said, if the Americans pull out of Iraq, they may lose their interest in being a, a shield in the Pacific. And we have a large country to the north of us called Indonesia, a large Muslim country whose armed forces could get to Sydney in 24 hours. And we may, in the days to come, in the years to come, be on our own without America's protective military shield. So already, you see, in places as far away as Australia, on the other side of the world from Iraq, um, serious brains are working on what will be the result of America's withdrawal, which will happen. Ultimately, the Americans, quite frankly, are going to have to talk to Iran and Syria. They'll need the help of those two countries to extricate themselves. They'll particularly need the help of Iran's faction within the government. In fact, the parties of the Dawah and the Skiri parties, which actually are in the Iraqi government and effectively run it, were nurtured in Iran. They are Iran's men in Iraq. 
uh, they'll need to talk to the leaders of the Iraqi insurgency, not the al-Qaeda people who, who are locked onto it. The Iraqis will have to deal with al-Qaeda later. But they'll have to talk to the officers in the Iraqi army who still hold the same ranks, even though Paul Bremer, the America's second proconsul, officially disbanded the Iraqi army. It is the Iraqi army that is staging the insurgency, the roadside bombs, the attacks on military positions, and so on. And I've met three of their leaders less than a year ago. One of them was a general who I'd actually interviewed back in 1980 when he led the first Iraqi tank column outside Basra to the front line in the invasion of Iran. Uh, I didn't recognize him, but I found my clipping later on, which clearly showed I had met him and interviewed him on his tank at the time, uh, all of 25 years ago. Um, the Americans will have to talk to these people. Some of them actually were trained in America and Britain. They speak English. They can be talked to. And I think the Association of Ulamas, the, the joint institution which brings together the Sunni and Shia clerics of Iraq, I think that the Americans will have to negotiate with them too, or have somebody like the United Nations, to do the negotiations for them, although I have to add that since the UN headquarters was blown up and since even the Red Cross headquarters was blown up in Baghdad, I'm not sure who the middleman can be, but all these people will have to be talked to, uh, and in this way, hopefully, the Americans and their British allies will be able to leave Iraq not with the humiliation of retreating under fire, but in good order, and hopefully leaving an Iraq behind which can put itself together under some form of coalition, not the coalition we would like, no doubt, and not with the women's rights and other um, con Western conditions tacked onto it, which we'd like to see, but at least a coalition which would hold the country together, because I don't think there will be a civil war in Iraq if we leave. There never has been a civil war. It's not a sectarian society. It's a tribal society. Many, many people in the country and in the cities are intermarried. Well, we have run uh, out of time. Um, there are, there are, we could go on for a I sometimes feel I've run out of time in the Middle East. Uh, well, I, I was, <laughs> no, I was going to uh, say, please, uh, on your next, well, on all of your travels, be, be particularly safe. And uh, I want to thank you so much for being a part of it. You're very kind. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a terrific book, uh, The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East. This is Robert Fisk. Thank you. Uh, we, I hope to talk to you soon. Me too. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. Weekly Signals.